John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. It's now been 24 hours since Jesus last slept. At least 14 hours since he last ate. And in this time period, he has been betrayed by Peter and before that by Judas. And the rest of the disciples have all fled. Some have followed at a distance, but all are unable to do anything. Those that do hang on watch these horrible events take place with no hope for help to arrive to save this, their master. Today is Friday. The meal of the upper room happened on Thursday. And the Sabbath begins in less than 12 hours from now. And at the same time, not from, far from where all this was happening, in the temple, devout Jews were standing in line to have their Passover lambs inspect, inspected, as referenced from verse 28. The rules and laws of the Passover are given to us in Exodus 12. And in verses 5 and 6 we read, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. And the religious leaders have made a killing off of these two verses. Because they were the inspectors of the lambs to be slaughtered. They were the ones that would tell you that no matter how closely you would have looked at that lamb, you missed this defect on your lamb, and it wasn't perfect, spotless. But lucky for you, right here next to us, we do have certified lambs for sale. They are perfect, spotless. And of course, we will take this imperfect lamb off your hands at a fraction of it, what it's worth since you're from out of town and you can't keep it anyway. And we will sell you one of these kosher, certified lambs at market value. And our verses begin with Jesus being led to the governor's house. And the hypocrisy of the Jews can be seen to know no bounds. They didn't want to enter into this Gentile's house. They didn't want to step so much as one toe into his house. Because if they did, they would be rendered unclean. And they couldn't eat the Passover meal of that evening. Never mind the fact that they had arrested this man for no reason, had broken their own laws by arresting him at night and interrogating him all night long in private. Never mind the malice and hatred that so overwhelmed their hearts that nothing, they thought nothing, of the fact of murdering this innocent man just because he was getting in the way and threatening their means of living. They were concerned with outward actions, not with inward sin. And in this one verse, astute minds have found the Achilles heel of the Gospels, or so they think. Because the Synoptic Gospels all seem to place that Last Supper on the day of the Passover, which would have been Friday, making this day Saturday. And if this is so, then there is a contradiction in the Bible, since we're clearly told in verse 28 that the Passover had not yet happened. 
The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, is the clearest of the synoptic Gospels that are seemingly at odds with our text. Beginning in verse 12, it reads, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and, a man, and, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as they told them. And they prepared the Passover. But there is no contradiction. And now you're wondering how this can be, since the synoptics all clearly state that they ate the Passover meal before Jesus was arrested, and yet the Gospel of John keeps talking about this being the day of preparation for the Passover. The problem that we have is that we follow a different calendar than the Jewish people did and do, and even begin and end our days differently than they do. Their calendar is based off new moon occurrences, and their days begin at sunset, not at midnight. But just like with our calendars, our calendars, the days that a calendar dates fall on can change. And Mark chapter 14 begins with this verse. Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In this verse, of, uh, chapter, or verse 1 of Mark 14, we're given some important information. The most important information we're given comes here. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and not kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now remember, Judas has already been in cohorts with the religious leaders to turn Jesus in. He needed prior information on where he would be to do that. A prearranged meeting place would have served the perfect location and time for something like that to happen. And we're, we're told of many times when Jesus went with the disciples and were invited to a meal, a dinner, or a banquet. They knew in advance where they would be eating that night or even the next night. And this is what Judas is looking for. Because, and because the Passover was such a huge deal, where millions of people would flood into the city of Jerusalem. If they didn't have prior reservations for the Passover, they were going to be in trouble. Judas and the religious leaders wanted to use the, this fact to their advantage, which the Lord knew. But being arrested anywhere outside of the garden on the day of preparation would not do, which is why the Mark verses are given to us the way that they are. And imagine, though, the frustration on the part of Judas, the concern in the hearts of the disciples over seemingly not having plans or reservations anywhere for the Passover. The Passover happens in two days, and we don't have reservations. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to eat? So when they couldn't take it any longer, they pressed the issue, which brings us to verse 12 of Mark where they asked Jesus if he had made reservations. And if Judas was hoping for an address to pass along to his buddies at the religious home office, he was denied one. But he did know of the routine that Jesus had of going to the garden after a dinner and spending time there in prayer. 
And this all happened early on the day, in thir- on Thursday. The meal would happen that night, and the rest of Jesus, the interrogation, would have happened early on their Friday, sometime after midnight, and would continue all night long until early in the morning, around 6 a.m., when they brought Jesus to Pilate. Okay, now you're really confused. Because the Passover was supposed to happen on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is a 30-day month, so the 14th day um, should be right in the middle. And then there's a seven-day holiday that happens, except when the eve of the Passover falls on a Sabbath. And the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. When that happens, that Sabbath is called a high Sabbath. And the Passover meal is eaten a day prior so as to not break the Sabbath. Well, lucky for us, we've got John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the body should not remain on the cross of this, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. And the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Bingo. Now we've got a winner. There is no contradiction. And additionally, though, I want to give you these other facts as proof. Because there's been a running theme throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That he is the true Passover. From the very beginning of this Gospel, the motif of Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is given to us. Chapter 1, verse 14, then verse 29, then verse 36. Jesus himself declares that he is the true temple. In chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Jesus demanded that for any to be covered by the atoning work, to be passed over, that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Chapter 6, verses 51 through 56. And then in his passion, we are meant to see him in light of the Passover lamb being beginning in chapter 10, verse 11, where we are told that he is the good shepherd. And then he consecrates himself in chapter 17, verse 19. And even the details of the actual sacrifice of the cross were forced to the Passover narrative. The unbroken bones in verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 33 to 36. Six. The hyssop that is used to give him a drink, uh, verse 29 of chapter 19. And even the reference to the sixth hour, verse 14 of chapter 19. Both John and the synoptics all agreed that the day of crucifixion was on the day of the preparation which is the reason Christ and the two thieves had to be quickly taken down off the cross, the cross and rushed into the tomb before the sun had set, John 19.42. Does this all matter? Does it matter what meal they ate with Jesus, whether it was the Passover meal or not? Yes, because Jesus desired that to, he wanted to eat this meal with them one last time. A meal that would point to the events that were about to happen before their very eyes as he became the real Passover. His body, the Lamb of God, and his sacrifice of atonement, the passing over of the wrath that we should endure. He had to die on Friday. And he worked on the Sabbath, becoming the atonement for us to rise on Sunday, the day of rest, He is our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, which is why we celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday 
and no longer on Saturday. Back to the account at hand. As the common priest had been inspecting the Passover lamb of the common people, the high priest had been working overtime inspecting the true Passover lamb, searching for any defect, any spot, any blemish. And he had, he had spent all night being inspected by these priests. And he had been found to be without spot, without blemish, so they could bring no charge against him. But this inconvenient fact wouldn't stop them in their quest to be rid of this man. Verses 29 through 32. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. But Pilate said to them, Well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to them by show, to show what kind of death he was going to die. And we're supposed to view this account as a trial setting, in a trial setting. Pilate had come out of his palatial quarters just as the judge comes out and enters into a courtroom. And he asked the prosecuting attorney, state the charge against the accused. But they didn't give Pilate what he was asking for, a charge but instead given him their desire for this man that he be that he um, that they had arrested and brought to him they desired death pilate was asking for a charge of crime the reason that he was being summoned at such an early hour of the morning bothered with their silly jewish problems and instead of being told that this man had been caught stealing breaking into the temple molesting a woman or carjacking a mule they responded with the only charge that they had against Jesus. None. And the response by Pilate back to them is sublime. If your laws can so easily and with such little qualification render this man evil, then they should also be just as easily be able to show his guilt. Where is it? And the answer back to Pilate by them is very important in our understanding of the state of the Jewish nation and the people. Because in chapter 8, Jesus had told some people who claimed to believe in him that they could, that, that he told them that he could set them free. And they answered him this way in verse 33 of chapter 8. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? They said that they had never been slaves to anyone, ever. Saints, as you sit there today, would you argue this case for them? Or would you point out to them that they had been slaves many times over throughout their long history, beginning with Joseph in Egypt, all the way up to that very day when the Romans ruled over them? How, how can this be? How were these people so blind? Had they not been taught their own history, like what's happening in our country? No. They were just hard-hearted and dull of hearing. They had not been given eyes to see and ears to hear, and for this reason could not come to Christ and be saved. And they actually thought that they had free will, that they were free agents. So what does this say about those in our day? that holds to the same thing. 
I've never been a slave. And in fact, I am not a slave to this day. Even those that claim that they believe, just as these folks do, did in chapter 8. And listen to the events that led up to this in chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. They didn't understand that he'd been speaking uh, to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. These folks thought that they heard a great message. They thought that they knew Jesus now, that, and they were willing to accept this version of him into their hearts. They were in a place where their emotions were being stirred. They were in a crowd that was emotionally excited, a place where religion was practiced, where the religious leaders were at. And here, this special guest speaker seemingly tells them of a way that will allow them not to die in their sins, who seemingly did not demand anything from them but just belief. So they raised their hand. They walked that aisle. They came to that kneeling bench in belief. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the shenanigans that, that happen in places that call themselves church? Does that sound like the stuff of kids' camps and False Creek? But Jesus was not a false prophet. He wasn't a heretic that offered something that was not true. And for this reason, he continued speaking truth to those that said that they believed. Verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offsprings of Abraham, and that we have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? What do you suppose it was that caused these people who said that they believed in Jesus to get so upset with him? He had only told them that they had to abide in his word. That was it. What was so off-putting about that? He explained that in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, physical offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Those people in chapter 8, they claim belief in Jesus. And at the same time, they held that they were not slaves, that they had never been slaves and would not be a slave, especially to his word. They were free agents. I can pick and choose what I want to believe in. But the reality is that they were still slaves to sin. No matter if they said that they believed in Jesus or not. Just as Jesus told them himself. And this is why we must preach the full counsel of God. Not a part of it. And this is why we cannot tell people that Jesus loves you. 
and leave it at that. This is what the folks in chapter 8 believed in. Not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That to come to Christ, you must come in submission to the word of God. That they must know Jesus as Lord. In verse 31 of our text today, the Jews said that it was not lawful for them to put anyone to death. But the funny thing is that the Jews at that day, at that time, could have killed Jesus. They had their rocks piled up ready for him. They killed people all the time as witness in just a few weeks from now when they stoned Stephen to death in that very city. But that death was much too easy a death for this man. They wanted him to suffer, to be humiliated, to show all that claimed belief in him that it was nothing more than rabble, pure trash. They desired for him to suffer corporal punishment. He was not the son of man, the son of God as he claimed. And his death at the hands of those hated Romans on that hated cross would prove to all, to all people, even those that claimed belief in him that he was nothing more than a liar. Or so they thought. But as John tells us in verse 32, Jesus had to be hanged on that tree. This was the preordained will of God. And this harkens back to that original Passover and the rules concerning how this sacrificial lamb had to be killed. If you ever have the stomach for it, go online and watch how those Passover lambs are killed. How they're prepared for the Passover meal. That body that has to be eaten. That lamb, when it has been killed and prepared, it looks like it's been hanging on a cross. And Jesus told Nicodemus that this was his destiny back in chapter 3. The very thing that caused John to exalt in God with such zeal that he penned verses 16 through 21. When Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3. The answer by the prosecutor. The charge being leveled against the accused, it shocked Pilate that up to the point that he did the unexpected for them. In verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? So Pilate saunters back inside his palatial mansion into his throne room, the place of his power, the evidence of his station in life, and motioned for the accused to be brought in. Still bound, still accused, called into the judge's chambers and asked him a question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? The question by Jesus in verse 34 is the question that should have been asked to begin with. It's the question of all eternity. 
Who do you say Jesus is? A fraud? A figment of my imagination? Ah, Jesus is a good man. He's a great example. A great way to get out of hell. Or is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the master of my eternity. It's this question that puts Pilate on the defensive as he tries to disassociate himself from the Jews. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And again, Pilate asks this rhetorical question as he sits on his throne, adorned in all his vestiges of Roman power and prestige. He says, am I a Jew? Examine me, Mr. Jesus. And Jesus answered him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. The answer by Jesus to Pilate is that he's not from here. Pilate made a try to disassociate himself from the Jews, from that religious party. But the response by Jesus reveals that he is the only one that is disassociated from all of them, both the religious kingdom and the Roman one. What Jesus says back to Pilate is that the source of his power, of his kingship, is not from this realm. It's not given or won from humans. And he didn't say that his kingdom does not operate in this world. Nor did he say that his kingship is not over this world. He said that his kingdom is not of this world. What was happening to him at that very moment, and all that had transpired up to that moment, and even all that would transpire in every moment for all of history, these were all under his kingship. And as proof of this, he tells Pilate that as if, if his kingdom had been threatened in any way, shape, or form by any of these events, by any of these mere mortals, he would have just dispatched some of his servants, and it would have been game over a long time ago. But his kingdom and his kingship are secure. They were never threatened. And these men, even Pilate himself, were operating in his kingdom exactly as he had preordained them to. In verse 37, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Aha! A light bulb went on for Pilate. You are so disillusional that you actually do believe that you're a king. Now I know how to deal with you, nutcase. That is until he hears the answer by Jesus. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Jesus understood the category for king in the mind of Pilate was much too small to properly describe him. So he tells Pilate what his kingdom is, what the mission and purpose and even the power of his kingship is. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who, who is of the truth listens to my voice. In this explanation and description of the kingdom of God, Jesus uses that word world again. 
He used it when he said that his kingdom is not of this world. And in both of these instances, the world that he's meaning is not just the people that lived on this planet. Nor does he mean just the physical realm of this world that is spoken of in John 1.10. Nor does he mean just the government and religious systems and all the people that are spoken of in John 15, verses 18 through 27. All these kingdoms, all these kingships are much too small to properly describe the kingdom and the kingship of King Jesus, which is why he gives Pilate a proper perspective of exactly how big his kingdom is. And it is described by one word, truth. And the mind of Pilate exploded. Pilate said to him, what is truth? In our generation, we don't think this is a strange statement. We're used to people not living in truth. We're used to being told that there are no absolutes, that there are no truths. There's only your truth and your truth and my truth. And the cesspool of our society proves that just like with Pilate, we don't understand truth. And truth is not a what. It's a who. And this is why Jesus said that he came into this world to bear witness to the truth. And that everyone who is of this truth listens to him. Truth is not a what, an, ec- an abstract thought, a theory, or a scientific category. Truth is a person, a person that is best described by Jesus in chapter 17, verse 3, when he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Saints, it's when you understand that truth is not a what, but a who, that we can get, we can finally understand that thrust of the prayer of Jesus, that he prayed for us, that he prayed in chapter 17. Listen to the verses 6 through 19 of that prayer once again. But I'm going to ask you not just to listen, but hear the words of God in this prayer. Let them sink in. He says, I've manifested your name to the people who you've given me out of the world. Has he manifested the Father to you? Do you know God as your God? Not an out there, not quite sure what it is force, something that you kind of think about once in a while, someone who you run to when you're in trouble. If this is how you view God, then there's a very strong likelihood that Jesus has not manifested his name to you. You may be kidding yourself. You may have been lied to about being able to choose God. And you may have even deceived yourself into thinking that you are one of those that have been given to Jesus from this world. But he defines who they are. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept and they have kept your word. There's that word again. Have you kept his word? Do you even know his word? Do you even care to know his word? Because this is his word. It's not a human book. This is his word. 
And then he goes on to describe those that have been given to him from his father. Listen to hear if, he, if he's describing you or not. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, that they, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Do you know that Jesus is Lord? Capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. He's not just your friend, not just a buddy, a guy who is good for you. Jesus is Lord. He is truth, just as the Father is truth, just as the Spirit is truth. And it is their truth that defines us as being of them or not. Why should this matter to you? Verse 9. Hear how, what he says next. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus was not praying for Pilate that man who stood there mocking him and looking down on him, who cared only about Jesus as it affected him. He couldn't know the truth, and for this reason could only answer, what's truth when told about truth? Know this, that if you are not given to Jesus as a love gift from the Father, then Jesus is not your friend, and he is not praying for you. And this is shocking. And it should be. It should scare the hell out of any that would, be, that would play at being a son of God. Being of the truth matters. And this is why. Verse 10 of chapter 17. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Because being of the truth will bring glory to God. The Son is praying for those that are his. And his prayer is that you be one with those that you have covenanted with. And if you can't see this of value, if you can't see the local body of Christ as, is of value, if you think that you can play the harlot, that you can go get your affirmation, your love outside of your covenant community, if you can forsake your covenant community and go out and find other people that call themselves Christians that are going to make you feel good about yourself, then you really don't see the word as a master over your life. And you really have no idea what it means to covenant with a person for life either. The word? Master over my life? What are you talking about? I thought you were talking about truth being God. What's this whole thing of the word being master over my life thing? Well, Jesus explains that next in verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the, the scripture might be fulfilled. That son of destruction was a poser. He had lived with the disciples. He had acted like he was a disciple. 
And he kind of obeyed like he was one too, except that he wasn't one. And he proved this by his actions. In his heart of hearts, he was the master and commander of his life. He could steal from the money purse and think nothing of it. He could mock the true heartfelt worship of Mary. And he could betray Jesus for money. And all of this happened in the will of God, governed by the word of God, that scripture might be fulfilled. And Jesus didn't pray for Judas either. But he, can, he continues to pray for those that are his. Verse 13, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Saints, do you have his joy fulfilled in you? Because this is his prayer to the Father for you. And then beginning in verse 14, he tells us the how of having his joy fulfilled in those that are his, that he is praying for. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Saints, can you see the importance of the word? And does this make any difference to you? Is the word the plumb line of your life, the rule of your life? Because if we are his, of him, of truth, if we do have eternal, true life, then we will understand that we, just like Jesus, are not of this world. And we must be of his world, which is described for us in the world, in the word. And then he wraps up this whole word being master over us thing in one single sentence. In verse 17 of chapter 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We must really understand what he, Jesus, is saying here. What he is praying to his father for. Sanctify them in the truth. Not sanctify them by the truth. The truth is not a tool that is used to bring about sanctification. It's not just an instrument outside of himself or like a brush or a wash rag that's used to clean your body. Truth is the means of sanctification. It's the source of our sanctification. It's the power of our sanctification. And the word is that. It's truth. Can you not see? Do you not see? If you can take the commands of God, the clear word of God, and decide that it does not apply to me. If you can decide that I am not going to give. I am not going to love my wife or submit to my husband. I am not going to obey my parent. I will not love my covenant body, and I will not forgive. If you are that person that says, don't quote scripture at me. I know what I believe. If you're that person that can be cloned, that can be shown clear scripture, and that you're living outside of it, be warned. You may not be of him, and you are not being sanctified in the truth, because his word is truth. And you need to be concerned that this prayer is not for you. That Jesus is not praying for you. 
And let us not neglect to finish the prayer of Jesus, though. Verses 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the how and the why of the truth. The truth is not a what. It's not something that, be could, that can be argued over or decided upon by mere mortals. In the binding of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, these things that he has endured at the hands of his enemies, they are the means of his consecration of how he's consecrating himself in order that we may be sanctified in truth. And Pilate couldn't understand this truth, which is what is shown to us in the rest of our verse 38 today. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What he's saying is that I'm not threatened by this Jesus. His claim of kingship was not viable. It wasn't a viable threat to the Roman government. This was merely just a theological debate. It had no real value. And this is why he would release him. Why he would say that he found no guilt in him. But Jesus now was merely a pawn to be toyed with in a political game between him and the religious leaders. He said in verse 39, You have a custom that I should release one man over to you at the Passover. Who do you want to release to you? King of the Jews? Not only was Pilate playing Jesus as a pawn to gain favor with the Jewish crowd that had gathered outside of his mansion, now he was mocking them. The religious leaders had done everything that they could to make sure that this man would never be given the title King of the Jews. But now openly, they have to acknowledge the title given to him, even if only by spurring the crowd against him. In verse 40, they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. They chose. And they chose Barabbas. The details of verse 40. And even this verse in itself is not a throwaway verse. It's not something we just go like, oh, so they chose Barabbas. Okay, bad choice. It's packed with meaning pointing back to the Passover and applying to the reality of the need for the true Passover that was at hand. And the Gospel of John is always very specific in its use of names or lack thereof. If you ever run across a name that is given in this Gospel, it should prick your attention. It should cause you to look up the meaning of that name. Take, for example, the name of this man, the one that the Jewish people are choosing, Barabbas. Barabbas means son of Abba. Do you know what the rest of his name is? Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father. Does that ring any bells? And then we're told what his nature was. He's a robber. Do you recall at the beginning of this message, I told you that the... uh, The events of our account are given us to cause us to think back to that original Passover lamb. And the first verse I gave to you was John chapter 10, verse 11. John 10, 11 reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But it isn't until you take that verse in context with the previous verses that you get to understand 
how important verse 40 is from our text today. Here are those related verses, 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold but the door, by the door, but any other, uh, by, I'm sorry, but climbs in any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep and name by name and leads them out. When he has brought his, all his own out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go out and in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now can you see why verse 40 is not a throwaway verse? And, how you, and now can you see how this is all intertwined, interrelated, how the prayer of chapter 17, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. How in these verses from chapter 10, he claims to be the door that all will enter by him will be saved. How in chapter 1, we're told, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the word, and his word is truth. And here, these people choose the son of their father, the robber. Satan, the one that only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And they chose him over the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And the true kingdom of God was on full display at that moment when that die was cast. The verdict came back, and the full wishes of the religious leaders were granted. This man, Jesus, would die. And first he would be crushed. And then he would be crucified. And they rejoiced in this. And all of this was the handcrafted plan and the will of the true king that was on the scene that day. Not the king of the nation Israel. And not the Caesar of Rome. But the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who had allowed himself to be arrested, humiliated, and will soon demonstrate to the entire universe the love of God for those that are his. But how could this be? How, how could the Jews choose Barabbas? What are we supposed to think of verses like a Isaiah 43.1, which tell us, But now thus says Yahweh, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Your mind. If that verse is reality, and it is, and verse 40 of John chapter 18 is reality, and it is, how do we reconcile these two things? How does the people that are the possession of God, who are his, how did they do this? This matters because if those that are his, that are of his possession can do this, then I'm pretty confident that I'm going to do this as well. 
In essence, what I'm asking is, can the redeemed, those that have once tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, can they fall away? And if so, can, and if so, can they be restored to repentance? Well, let's answer that second question first. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, when they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And now the first part of that question. Can the redeemed lose their salvation? Can you, if you are his, can you crawl through the holes in the hand of Christ to escape? John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. But what about the Hebrew verse? That Hebrew verse. Or what about 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20? When... When Paul tells Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom were Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How do we reconcile these things? Well, we can find the answer to these questions in the disciples. Judas is a great representation of those Hebrews verses. Someone who makes a profession of faith, who seems to be doing okay, but really is there just for what they can get out of it. And once the shine falls off, once they've actually given themselves over to their true love, they will jump full tilt into sin. And never come back. And this was also the nation Israel. And the people who chose Barabbas. And Peter is a great representation of those first Timothy verses that I just read. A man who had to be broken. Who really should have followed after Judas. But because of, who, of, of being of the Lord. Because he was of the true Israel. Because he had been given to Jesus, he was sifted. But Jesus had prayed for him. Remember that prayer of chapter 17? I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given to me, for they are yours. Saints, does your sin cause you to worry about your salvation? Good. But know this, saints can and will sin. Sometimes we will commit horrible sins and can evenly, seemingly fall away for a short time. This is the breaking of the Lord. But those who are his, that he has prayed for, they will be convicted of their sin and they will repent and they will flee to the open arms of their Savior, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And saints, please hear me on this. Chase after God now. Choose not to be casual in your relationship with him. 
Know the word. Delight in the word. And obey the word. Let me tell you from personal experience, it is far less painful and far more fulfilling. And the Lamb of God was slain for your sins. And he is absolutely worthy. This is the number one reason why you should chase after God, why you should make the word of God the banner that flies over your life. The Lamb of God that was slain for your sins is absolutely worthy to, re to receive the reward of his suffering. And you are that reward. He delights in you. Understand, saints, you are still a sinner. But you are a saint, and he has called you a saint. And he has made you a saint now, not some point in the future. Choose today who you will serve. If you are a saint, Make his word preeminent in your life. And in doing so, you will prove by bringing glory to him in your submission to his word that you are his. Let's pray.